passage known as the Annunciation, uh, the angel Gabriel appearing to the Virgin Mary and foretelling the fact that she will give birth to a son uh, who will be called Jesus, the Son of God. You can find that reading today in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. We will read through the end of verse 38, and that is found on page 855 of our ESVs, if you picked one up on the way in. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Before we read God's holy word, let us go to him again in prayer and seek his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you who give wisdom to those who ask of you, we pray for wisdom to hear and to read your word, that you would bring forth life in us by your word of truth. Cause us, O Lord, to see glorious things of our Savior, to rejoice in who He is, that we would see Your mercy and Your kindness in Jesus Christ, and so we would be kept by Your Spirit looking to Him until the day that You call us to Yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hear now God's Word as we find it in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be? since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add to it a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. I wonder if you have ever been in the situation to learn that someone is pregnant, and this someone is not someone that you already knew, someone you've just met. Perhaps she's your waitress or your hairdresser. Perhaps she's simply the woman who's in front of you at Market Basket in the line. Maybe she's visibly pregnant, or maybe you overheard a conversation, but you learned that she's going to have a baby, her first baby. And because you're bold, and because you believe that all children are a gracious gift from the Lord, you say something like, how wonderful. 
What a blessing. Congratulations. And she manages a smile, but just barely. And you can tell that it's more than the exhaustion. And behind her courtesy, there, you can tell that she's scared and unprepared, and maybe she's even alone. And this blessing of a child which ought to have brought joy has filled her with fear of what is to come. Now, we as a church support uh, the work and the ministry of First Concern Pregnancy Resource Center in Clinton. If you were to go to their website and look at what they are about, their stated mission is to extend help in situations where the beginning of new life has brought hardship or confusion instead of joy. You know, we have a term for new babies and the beginning of life that bring hardship and confusion rather than joy. We call them crisis pregnancies. They're unexpected, they are unplanned, and unprepared. And there are a few pregnancies, I think, in the history of the world that had the potential to create a crisis for the mother-to-be like the one that we have before us. Let's not read this passage. I think this is the benefit of reading this in September rather than in December, as we normally do. Let us not read this passage with 2,000 years of sterile Christmas nostalgia. This is a harrowing tale that we have before us, a true account. And from a purely human standpoint, Mary is about to enter into a world of shame and ridicule. What is she going to tell her father? What is she going to tell Joseph? And what is everyone else going to think about Mary? Who would believe the story about an angel in a virgin birth? In the previous account that we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth, the story ended on a note of praise. Elizabeth, at home, in seclusion, for whatever reason that she was hiding herself away, said the Lord has visited her and given her a child, and that child meant that the Lord was taking away Elizabeth's reproach before people. But this baby for Mary is not going to take away her reproach. This child is going to be her reproach. Thirty years later, the Jews are still going to be tossing the questionable circumstances of Jesus' birth in his face all over again. Reminding Jesus where they think he's come from. Reminding themselves why they don't really have to take him seriously at all. And perhaps reminding Mary what everybody thinks about her and nobody is willing to say out loud. There's a reproach in these verses. And if we were to see it purely through unbelieving eyes, there's a scandal here but not for Mary. Not for this humble girl who is willing to bear the reproach of Christ because she sees in the angel's greeting what is really there. It's a promise of God's grace and his mercy. An unbelievable gift. A child for her and a savior for the world. And it's unexpected. And it's undeserved. And it is unmerited grace. This is what we need to remember about Jesus' birth. This is what we need to remember about the infinite God stepping into time and space and human history. We need to remember that Christ came into the world as God's gracious gift. 
given to be received by his humble people. We see this first. The account begins with a gracious promise. And from start to finish, this is a story of condescension. And that's what grace is. Grace is God stooping low to deal in mercy with his people where they are. Not demanding that his people climb some unattainable ladder up to where he is, but grace is God's condescension to us to step down to where we are and in the muck, in the mire of our sin, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the promise that Mary receives through the angel Gabriel. It is condescension through and through. It is stepping low in humility. We met Gabriel last week in the previous passage. Gabriel, this shining messenger of God's kingdom. Gabriel, this one who stands in the very presence of God. Gabriel, this one who appears to priests in the glory and the splendor of the temple while the multitudes gather outside at the hour of prayer and the incense ascends to the Lord in all of the splendor. Verse 26 reminds us again of Gabriel, sent from the presence of God carrying his message into the most obscure backwater in Israel. You remember the way that Nathanael scoffed. Philip told him, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and he rolls his eyes. Anything good to come out of Nazareth. Archaeologists tell us that in the first century, Nazareth was a town, a village of about 400 people. That's it. About 400 farmers and villagers and workers gathered together, raising their families. And by the way, it was all the way up at the top, the northern reaches of Israel. And nobody went up there because there were Gentiles all over the place. And if you wanted to get there from the metropolitan hub, you either had to go through Samaria, which nobody did, or you had to walk around Samaria and it would take forever. Nazareth was the kind of place that you settled in only if you had no better options. And it was in Nazareth to a virgin that the heavenly messenger goes. To this as yet unmarried young woman, probably of about 14. The guess ranges anywhere from 12 to 15, 17 at the uppermost, probably somewhere around 14. And it's clear from the passage that Mary is not ignorant. She is not some, uh, some ignorant bumpkin. She's intelligent. She's thoughtful. But most likely she was illiterate. Most likely, she was a peasant girl with a peasant's ambitions for what her life would look like. Kent Hughes describes Mary's future as it would have looked just about five minutes before Gabriel appeared. Here's what he says. Mary's life would not be extraordinary. She'd marry humbly. She'd give birth to numerous poor children. She'd never travel farther than a few miles from home. And one day, she would die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And it is to this relative nobody that Gabriel appears and he says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is stooping low. He's meeting you where you are. He's coming to you with a gracious promise into the quietness of your village, into the obscurity of your unimpressive life. The King of glory is coming. There's a delightful juxtaposition uh, in verses 31 and 32, and there's this connection uh, between the role of Mary and the role of her son. 
this juxtaposition hinges, uh, take a look at the text, it hinges on this idea of what Jesus is to be called. In verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now, of course, the angel is telling Mary something wonderful, something supernatural here. And we're going to talk about the supernaturality of, of this birth in just a moment but think for a second, there is nothing more natural, there is nothing more normal, there's nothing more pedestrian than a young mother conceiving and giving birth and giving her child a name. It happens every day, all over the world, all the time. You can imagine a young preteen Mary before her betrothal to, to Joseph, and she's doing her household chores, and she's daydreaming. What is she daydreaming about? about the children that she'll have, about how perhaps the Lord will bless her and her first child will be a son and she will love him and she will care for him, but what will she name him? Maybe a name that, that honors one of her ancestors or one of her future husband's ancestors. Maybe a name that speaks of God's mercy to his people. Maybe a name that speaks of, of one of her heroes from the scriptures. These are the things that young girls think about, and you can imagine there's nothing more normal and natural than for a young mother to conceive and bear and name a child. But Gabriel says to Mary, you're not going to be the only one naming him. You're not going to be the only one claiming him as yours, because in verse 32, it says that he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. That's not so much another name like Jesus for him, but it's a title. That's, that's his identity. And it means that to all the other children growing up in Nazareth, he might have been just Jesus. To everybody else, he would have been the carpenter's son. He would have been Mary's firstborn. But it also means that the Lord on high is smiling over him and saying, that's my boy. And he'll be called Jesus. He'll be called Savior. He'll be called the Son of God. And there's nothing more glorious. There's nothing more exalted. There's nothing more divine for this child who is going to be born. And that name for God, the Most High, that's a poetic name. It shows up most often in the Psalms, and it speaks of God who is over all things. God who wills and directs. God who sits over all the rulers of the earth. God who is enthroned on high above the kingdoms and the rulers of the, of the world. And the angel is declaring to Mary this gracious promise that her humble son will be the glorious king, and her babe in arms will be the ruler of the galaxies. And to this day, it stretches the mind's of the world's greatest theologians. How can one person be fully man and fully God? How can the one who created the pre-existent creator of reality, how can he enter into time, into space? How can the one who is timeless and omnipotent, how can he take on humanity with its frailties and with its sufferings? How can the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever become a child who will grow in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? How does it happen? And that's the promise. For the sake of his people, Jesus is going to come. For the salvation of the elect, he will be born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's nothing more glorious. There's nothing more unbelievable. Nothing more gracious in this condescension that the son should stoop low to become flesh. I wonder if, if Mary understood what was being told to her at this time. If she could even begin to grasp what the angel was saying. And, and you know, Mary, did you know that song that is sung all over the place at, at Christmas time? Well, of course she knew. Of course she knew, because here is a young woman who knows her scriptures. Perhaps illiterate though she may be, she knows the threads of redemption that are woven through the story of her people. And she understood the promises and the covenants the Lord had made to enter into the world as the redeemer of his people. We see in these words the promise to Jacob, the promise through Jacob rather, that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, until the ruler comes to whom that scepter belongs. This is the promise to David, that the Lord will establish a house for him, that he will raise up one of his own offspring from his own body, one of his own descendants, and his throne will be established forever, and the Lord will be to him a father, and he will be to the Lord a son. This is the vision of Daniel, the one like a son of man presented to the ancient of days. And his kingdom and his dominion will have no end and will not pass away. And so as the angel Gabriel speaks of this great one who will rule over, Daniel's, over David's throne forever, Mary knows. Her son is going to be the Messiah. This is what God has spoken and this is what God is doing even in Nazareth even in the midst of obscurity and humility. Into the unseen darkness of the virgin womb, the king of glory was entering in. Dear brothers and sisters, would that you could remember that. Would that you could lay that truth to heart, that the Son of God was not above obscurity and humility and condescending to where we are. Would that you would remember that when you watch the church in the world, being pushed to the sideline and marginalized. Wouldn't that you would remember that when you see the bride of Christ persecuted and facing difficulty. And the temptation arises in our hearts to think that, uh, that blessing is found insignificant. That what it means to be blessed in the world is to be applauded and welcomed and received as those who are thought well of. Now you remember that Christ didn't mind being thought ill of. But he was willing to step into humility and to condescend to where we are, to stoop low. This is what's happening in this passage. This is a, a gracious promise that the Lord should stoop low to meet us where we are. So we find a gracious promise, and then we find, secondly, a miraculous power. I've already mentioned that Mary was a peasant perhaps illiterate, and surely the people today would look at her and, and call her that, that worst of all names. They would say that she's pre-scientific. That means that she is uh, completely not to be trusted. That she is utterly out of touch with reality because uh, she works in a different realm. But don't let any of those things make you think for a moment that Mary was some kind of simpleton. Because you don't have to have a master's degree to know that there is a roadblock in the plan the Lord has just laid out. And Mary brings up that roadblock in verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? 
Now, I'm really thankful for Luke uh, right here at this point. Luke, the, the beloved physician, right? He's a doctor. Luke who knows a thing or two about how babies are made and born. And Luke is aware and he records this conversation in a way that we cannot sidestep this issue. It is not something somewhere in the background that somebody made up seven centuries later to say, oh, here's another dogma we can add to the church to keep the people under our thumb. And I think perhaps the Holy Spirit, foreseeing that in latter days people would come with itching ears, desiring to gather preachers to suit themselves, and, and those preachers would come along and say, well, you know, that Greek word parthenos, it doesn't mean that she has to be literally a virgin. It might just mean that she's a young woman of marriageable age. That's, that's all it means. That's all we have to read into that one word, parthenos. And they end up implying all sorts of wicked things about this godly woman because they want to ignore this miraculous thing that the Lord says actually happened. But the text doesn't give us that option. You might notice the footnote uh, in your ESVs that Mary actually, when she responds to the angel, uses that wonderful biblical euphemism. How will this be because I have not known a man? Quite bluntly, that thing that needs to happen to have a baby, it has not happened. And so how will the Lord work around this obstacle to his promises? And you notice that Gabriel doesn't answer her. He gives her an answer. He responds to her question, but it's not the answer that she was looking for. Mary asked a question of biology. How will this happen? And Gabriel responds with poetry. Two synonymous lines, saying the same thing in a different way. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how it will happen. It will happen in mystery and silence. It will happen under the cover of God's almighty hand. God's power will rest upon you and he will work a miracle that only the creator of life can work. The Holy Spirit will prepare in your womb a body of real human flesh for the real divine Son. He'll prepare a body that can live and grow and bleed and die and suffer for the sins of God's people. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this one will be holy. He will be kept from the sin and the stain of Adam. He will not be corrupted under that first representative. He will be the perfect Lamb of God without spot or blemish. And he says it's going to happen as the power of the Most High overshadows you. And that doesn't actually tell us a whole lot about how it happens. In fact, it, it conceals at least as much as Gabriel is revealing here. This word, overshadow, in fact, we sang it in our opening hymn today. Speaking of how often the Lord oshades you. It was the, the version that we sang in, in that first, uh, first hymn. But this word is used several times in the scriptures. It's used to speak of the transfiguration of Christ. And Peter and James and John go with Jesus up onto the mountain. And before the Lord reveals himself to these three disciples, it says that the cloud came and overshadowed them. It enveloped them so that only these three could see the brilliance of who Christ really is. This wonderful, miraculous, powerful thing was being kept hidden on purpose. 
This is a word that is spoken of in the tabernacle in Exodus. It says that the cloud of the Lord descended upon the tent of meeting, and it overshadowed the tent of meeting, and it was so thick that not even Moses, the prophet of the Lord, could enter into where the Lord was. And Mary says, how is this going to happen? And Gabriel says, it's going to happen in secret, Mary. But it's going to happen by this miraculous power of the Lord. And he will bring about what is impossible. I've been thinking a lot this week uh, about this answer from Gabriel. I've been wondering why, perhaps, he answered in the way that he did. Maybe, maybe, perhaps, uh, he did it because Mary probably wouldn't understand these things. You know, Mary, there are these things called chromosomes, and you've got 23, and you need 23 more, and I don't think that's why. Gabriel said, well, it's going to be a mystery and a miracle. I've been wondering if perhaps this, this howl of the virgin birth was part of those things into the Savior which even the angels long to gaze. If maybe Gabriel himself didn't know exactly how it was going to happen, Whatever the reason for Gabriel's answer, this is the response that Mary needed. And so often this is the response that we need. Because this is the answer that tells us that there are some things about the way that the Lord works in the world and about his power and about his ability that God's people are meant to receive without comprehending. There are some areas of revelation that we must be like Job and we must lay our hand on our mouth and and be silent in faith of what the Lord will do. Now, it's not because God hates curiosity. This is not a rebuke of Mary. This is not because God wants his people good and ignorant. It is not because God is some sort of magician who is working in illusion and he doesn't want you to see behind the curtain of what he's doing. The reason there are things in, in God's working in the world which we are not meant to comprehend the reason that is the case is that the Lord wants us to trust in Him and not in our understanding of Him. So often it happens that good, well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians read the Scriptures and they come to something that's puzzling. And we convince ourselves that maybe we will be more faithful if we can figure out all the details of how this happened in a way that makes sense to us. If we can calculate and to determine which frequency the Israelite soldiers needed to shout in order to make the walls of Jericho come crumbling down. If we can calculate how much oxygen does a man in the belly of a great fish need to survive for three days, maybe we'll be more faithful if we can answer that question. If we can put together a spreadsheet of all the different species, of all the different animals that might have been on the ark, and how much food they need, and how much space they need, and what Noah had to pack for the entire cruise, maybe we'll be more faithful, we convince ourselves. But here's the question. If you are able to work out all the equations, and all the calculations, and all the probabilities of the Bible's miracles, will that make you more likely to believe that there is a God with whom nothing will be impossible? Or will you just feel safe in that mistaken belief that there is no supposed miracle that can't be proven by naturalistic explanations? 
And when you face a situation in your own life where the Lord says nothing is impossible, will you then begin to calculate and think, well, this doesn't seem very probable, does it? The answer that Mary received is that there is an almighty God who is able to work as and when he wants in the world that he created. He's powerful. He's perfect. His ways are beyond searching out, and he sent the gift of his son into the world by his miraculous power and into the womb of a virgin. There's one more thing we need to see uh, in this passage, and we find it in the humble response of Mary in verse 38. And I think there, uh, there are a lot of Protestants that don't quite know what to think about Mary. Maybe it comes from the way that we over-sentimentalize Christmas, because you get your Christmas cards, and if Mary is there, she always looks put together. She always looks like this quiet, wonderful, saintly mother, the only mother in the history of the world who was able to give birth without breaking a sweat, and she's there. And she seems so removed from our own experience that we think, well, this, I, I don't even know what to do with this, because this is not what I'm used to. Or maybe worse, there are quite a few people in this room who are, in a sense, still recovering from half of a lifetime of idolatry of Mary. And how often have some of you here prayed that prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace, based on that mistranslation of the passage that we just read. But it doesn't actually say that she is full of grace. It certainly doesn't say that she's able to give you any grace. In fact, the language here is passive. She is the graced one. She is the recipient of God's favor, the undeserving recipient, the object of God's blessing. And so whether it comes from Christmas or whether it comes from Rome, I think there are a lot of us that don't quite know what to do with Mary. We certainly don't ponder her long enough to be amazed as we should, by, should be by the response that she makes. She's just been surprised by this angelic visitor. She's been told that she's going to have a baby without the aid of a husband. She's been given an explanation that is mysterious to her, an explanation that will be, quite frankly, unbelievable to everybody else. And she's been called to give herself completely to what the Lord has planned for her. And the word of the Lord is coming to Mary, and he's saying, I'm going to use you in the world. And it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be tidy, and you may not be able to see exactly what I'm doing along the way, but I want you to trust me, because it's going to be worth it. And what does Mary say? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. And that's amazing. That by the grace of God, this teenager succeeded where we saw Zechariah fail. What did Zechariah say in chapter 1, verse 18? How can I know this? How can I be sure that this is actually going to happen? And Mary succeeds where Zechariah fails. Mary is, by the grace of God, resolute where mighty men of valor were waffling. Judges chapter 6, an angelic visitor shows up. Greetings, O mighty man of valor, Gideon, the Lord is with you. Go up in the strength of yours and deliver Israel. 
Okay, but let's try this fleece thing first. <laughs> Mary is resolute, and she submits where Moses pled for a replacement. Exodus chapter 4, verse 13, Moses says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Not Mary. Here am I. Send me. Behold, the servant of the Lord. It didn't have to make sense to her. It didn't have to be neat and tidy or quick. The Lord has called her and he's promised to give the grace of his son to her. And Mary responds in a humble faith that ought to be an example to all of us. And that's the mysterious thing about God's grace, actually. Is that his humility is the only requirement to receive it. God has promised in his son life and blessing and forgiveness in Jesus. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God's made peace with rebels and he's covered the iniquity of sinners. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Condescending grace. Stooping low to meet us where we are. But this grace doesn't come to those who think they deserve it. This is not the reward and the payment for good behavior or religious toil. God's grace is a gift. And it comes to those who are humble enough to recognize their need. It comes to those who are humble enough to repent of their sin and to receive God's promise. To those who are humble enough to believe God's word. This is how God's gift has come into the world. In humility and obscurity and miraculous power. It has come in the grace and the person of Jesus Christ. And the Lord opposes the proud. But in Christ, he gives grace to those who are humble enough to receive him. This is God's mercy and his gift to you. That Christ has come low, stooping to meet you where you are. Will you stoop low enough to meet him? Please pray with me. O Lord, our God, we thank you the promise of Jesus Christ and for his coming into the world, his perfect obedience to your righteous law and his perfect sacrifice for the sins of all your elect. We thank you for his resurrection power and for his ascending to the right hand of the Father where he is seated now even making intercession for saints who are too weak and too unworthy to merit anything of your grace by their own. O oh, gracious Lord, give us humility. Give us humility to receive him in faith and repentance. Give us humility to cry out to you. And so keep us, O Lord, in Christ and in your grace until that day when we see him face to face in the very presence of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a table which proclaims to us the condescending grace of God that Jesus Christ would take on a real body that the Logos would become flesh, that the Word would be manifest among us to reveal to us grace and truth from the Father, that He should become the spotless Lamb of God without blemish or wrinkle or any such thing to give Himself for the life of His people. This table proclaims that true body prepared for Him, a body broken and blood poured out as the sacrifice for God's people. This is a gift. This is not a demand on your piety because you have none of your own. 
This is a table where we are called to come and examine in humility our need for what the Lord has offered in Jesus Christ. To cry out to him perhaps again in repentance, again in faith, and to receive the promise that he will keep all those he is gathering to himself, that he will keep them stayed upon Christ. He will sustain them to the last, and he will keep them until that day when he raises us up with the one who was brought low for us. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have professed faith in him and joined yourself to a church where his gospel is preached and his word is believed, this table and this promise is for you. Come and eat and drink in faith. If you are not trusting in the one who stooped low to deal with the sin of his people, if you have not professed publicly your need of him, and been joined to his church, we ask that you would allow the elements to pass. Consider whether the Lord may be calling you to himself in humility and humble repentance and faith. We read in the Gospel of Mark that the Lord Jesus, as he was eating with his disciples, took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. O great and righteous Lord, great Father of all your children, who deals not according to our sins, but according to your great mercy, thank you for Christ, whom you have given as the propitiation for all our sins. Thank you for his riches laid aside that in poverty we may become rich in his righteousness. We thank you for his sacrifice, which is again proclaimed to us here, for his death that we will proclaim together until that day when he comes again. Thank you that by this one and single sacrifice made long ago, you have fully satisfied for all the sins of your people, and you draw them to yourself and you keep them by your Holy Spirit as you overshadow us by the power of the one who is most high. O Lord, do a work of faith and repentance and humility in us as we come and eat and drink. And as we rest on the merits of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
The Lord said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. 